Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Friday, October 15th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, gridlock in Jackson as a special session for medical marijuana may be slipping out of reach. Then Mississippi has the second highest childhood obesity rate of any state in the country. And a new series from Reveal revisits the death of a black Mississippian during a traffic stop. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Governor Reeves told reporters at a press conference Tuesday he wasn't quite ready to call a legislative special session to legalize medical marijuana, but he reiterated that he felt in sync with lawmakers as they worked to put forth a cannabis bill. We've made great progress. We've worked very closely with our legislative leaders and and hope to continue to do so. Lawmakers, however, are apparently growing frustrated by delays in the process, and they blame the governor. That's per new reporting from Jeff Pender of Mississippi Today. One legislator, Republican House member Lee Yancey, says the governor that Governor Reeves has pushed him and his colleagues to accommodate unreasonable alterations to the bill, and that Reeves won't greenlight a special session until they do. Representative Yancey speaks with Rob Lane. On September 23rd or 24th, the House and the Senate finally did reach an agreement, and we notified the governor that we were in agreement, and his attorneys took their time looking at the bill, and they came back to us with 11 suggestions that they wanted changed in the bill, and of those 11, uh, we changed eight of the 11 as they requested. They came back to us Monday or Tuesday of this week and and said uh, there was still one other thing that we had not uh, changed that was a prerequisite to the governor calling a session. And if we wanted a session, then we had to change a particular thing, which was lowering the 3.5 grams to 2.8 for everyone but doctors. So doctors could certify that someone has a debilitating illness in order for them to get a medical marijuana card and then the maximum amount for that for a daily unit in the dispensaries would have been the 3.5 grams. And so suggesting there was that 
medical doctors had a, an additional uh, certifying authority, if you will, of 3.5 rather than the 2.8 that the nurse practitioners and physicians assistants and optometrists would have. And that created a number of problems for us and is that it just creates a scope of practice issue that, you know, we have these, seems like every session where it's turf protection for different groups, whether it's doctors versus nurse practitioners or it's ophthalmologists versus optometrist or on and on and on we could go and deal with that. Uh, number two, it creates uh, a nightmare for uh, law enforcement, if you stop someone uh, and they have just come from a dispensary and they have their medical marijuana there in the car with them, if they have the uh, the maximum allowable limit or less and, and a valid medical marijuana card, then they would be presumed to be legal. But if they had between 2.8 grams and 3.5 grams, then the question would be, did you see a physician or did you see an optometrist or did you see a physician's assistant or did you see a nurse practitioner? And there's really no way for law enforcement to know who had actually certified the person. And so that, that created a complication. It strikes me as somewhat interesting that there's sort of a clean sweep of Republicans involved here, right? Both chambers of the state legislature are Republican. Dr. Dobbs is a Republican. And of course, the governor is a Republican. At the core of this, is there a difference in political philosophy or is it really something else that's driving this disagreement? I think there are people who are coming from a perspective of fear and there are people who are coming from a perspective of hope. Those who fear this are afraid of what if it's abused? They're already doing that. There's a $700 million to a billion-dollar-a-year black market marijuana industry in Mississippi right now. So you know, we're cutting into the black market by putting a, a regulated program in place. Uh, there are people who approach it from fear. There are also people who approach this from a side of hope. A cancer patient who's lost so much weight that they're dying, they're unrecognizable to their families. They're about to have to get a feeding tube. Medical marijuana would give them an appetite people who have multiple sclerosis, people who have ALS or muscular dystrophy, who have muscle spasticity, whether they have uh, quadriplegia and they're having muscle symptoms. Um, there are a number of things that medical marijuana would do that would alleviate those muscle spasms and the muscle pains and cramps that they're having uh, because it relaxes you. And if they don't have medical marijuana, then they're going to be taking opioids uh, they're going to be taking something much more addictive and something with greater side effects. And medical marijuana would be a much better option for them. There are many people who are terminal, uh, who are suffering, and many of them are in opioid-induced comas where they're spending their last days and weeks and months asleep rather than when they could be having quality time visiting with family members without suffering with the use of medical marijuana. So you have these people who are looking at this from a position of hope. So it's fear versus hope. And I think those are the two camps that you will find most people in. Maybe there's some that are just in a business camp who are just trying to do something to that effect. But as far as the, the, the medical program, you know, there are those who fear what it might be, and there are those who have hope that this would be something that would help them or help someone they love who is suffering. 
So, and I just find myself in the hope category. If the governor doesn't back down on his dosage requests and therefore you don't get a special session, are you and your colleagues willing to sort of throw in the towel and just wait until January and do it then? Yes. Okay. And if that happens and conflict with the governor continues and potentially he threatened to not sign a bill, are you confident that you have a veto-proof majority? Yes. Uh, strong majorities on both sides. I'd say 80% on both sides. I think Senator Blackwell feels like he has 40 votes out of 50, and I feel like I've got 100, 100 or more out of 120. I think the important thing that everyone realizes is that we get something in place, we get it in statute rather than in the Constitution, uh, where it would have been with Initiative 65, have it in statute so that we can tweak it as we go and make changes for the better for the program and for the people for whom it's designed to help, the people with cancer and multiple sclerosis and muscular dystrophy and ALS and on and on we could go, spastic quadriplegia. I mean, people who are really, really suffering and can end up the effects of medical marijuana can really help alleviate their suffering. Lee Yancey is a Mississippi state representative. Coming up, a new report sheds light on childhood diabetes in Mississippi. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. More than 22% of children in Mississippi are obese, according to a new study from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. That rate is second highest of any state in the U.S. Sandra Shelson is the executive director of a nonprofit called the Partnership for a Healthy Mississippi. She tells Kobe Vance she's actually heartened by the statistic. Only because we occupied the first space for so long. And... 2016, our childhood obesity rate was 26.2. And while, yes, we only dropped one spot to second, uh, it's dropped to 22.3. So if you're trying to find a the glasses have full kind of uh, scenario, we do have that. But is there a lot of work to be done? Yes. Do we still have a long way to go? Yes. What are some of the major contributing factors that might be leading to, you know, so many Mississippi children still having high obesity rates? You know, obviously, it's not only the children. Um, we're second in the, the nation with our adult rate as well. The number one reason, and I, I firmly believe this, is poverty. Poverty is something that is financial, but it also has to do with the demographics of where you live. What do I mean by that? When you are living in an area that does not have access to healthy foods, easy access to healthy foods, when you don't have, you know, you have a very reduced amount of money to purchase foods, when you live in a neighborhood that doesn't have sidewalks or access to parks for children to play, all of those things would be taken into consideration. The idea that poverty drives a lot of this, it can be hard to get your mind around, so to speak. And by that, I mean um, it's hard sometimes for people to understand that you can be 
hungry and be obese at the same time. And it's because when you are on a very fixed income or you have a limited access to certain foods, the foods that you do primarily have access to are going to be high caloric, high fat, high salt, and high sugar. You mentioned that Mississippi does have a high obesity rate in adults as well. What's the importance of addressing the obesity rate of children and how it can affect you know, other health attributes later in life? Well, one of the things that when um, here at the partnership, we started getting involved with childhood obesity over a dozen years ago, one of the disturbing trends was the percentage of type 2 diabetes that was being diagnosed in younger people. Type 2, unlike type 1, which is is typically, you know, organic to the person and, and typically onset when you're younger. But type 2 is something that is very much behavioral driven. And we used to not see it reveal itself until much later, you know, adult. But we were seeing because of these increased obesity rates that younger and younger children were having the symptoms and then being diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. When it comes to policy, what would you like to see done to address childhood obesity and education around obesity here in Mississippi going forward? Well, if I could wave a magic wand, the first thing I would try to do is to improve uh, our poverty rate because I think that would have the most significant impact. However, let's be more realistic. So um, one thing that Mississippi lags behind greatly and, and there's this concept of called a, a built community. And a built community is one where uh, there's more walkability, there's more opportunity for physical activity. Our built community percentage is only 42%, while the national average is, is right at 75%. So there's some work that needs to be done there. A lot of people remember being able to walk to school. Well, because our built environment situation is not conducive to that, that's not something that's available to a lot of children. Also, to continue finding ways to um, incentivize grocery stores and convenience stores, uh, farmers markets, finding ways to promote the healthier option, the healthier food options. If we did something like that, everybody is going to benefit. You know, the farmers in Mississippi will have more produce to sell if we're doing you know, farm to school, farm to child care, farm to whatever the institution is, providing more locally grown foods. Also, you know, sometimes you've got, you need to de-incentivize, meaning if uh, if the the healthier choice is the more affordable choice and the unhealthier choice is the less affordable choice, you know, people with limited means are going to gravitate toward the less expensive. So there's things like that that can be done. And just addressing the idea that, you know, Mississippi, while we are an agricultural state, we do have this phenomenon of food deserts. And that's where people who live further away from the access that I was talking about, you know, we need to make sure that there are opportunities for people to buy healthy foods. In Mississippi, in certain areas, transportation is is a huge problem. 
you know, the Mississippi Delta, a lot of people don't have their own, you know, they don't have a vehicle. There's not public transportation. So being able to make that weekly trip to the grocery store can be quite uh, cumbersome, burdensome, daunting, if you will. So those are a few examples of uh, ways that we can continue to uh, improve, try to continue to make the healthy choice the easy choice from a policy standpoint. Sandra Shelson is Executive Director of the Partnership for a Healthy Mississippi. Sandra, thank you for talking with us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Coming up, a new series from Reveal revisits the death of a black Mississippian during a traffic stop. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think, eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. The investigative public radio show Reveal is launching a new series this weekend. It's called Mississippi Goddamn and examines the circumstances surrounding the death of Mississippian Billy Joe Johnson. Johnson was a black man from Loosedale who died by gunshot in 2008 during a traffic stop. A grand jury found that he shot himself, but his family still isn't convinced. Al Letson hosts the series. So I found out about this story in 2011. Uh, I tried to uh, look into it then, but at the time, the show that I was working for was not an investigative unit, and to do something like this, you, you absolutely need the investigative muscle. So I'd been trying to look into the story for years, and then around, uh, I think it was 2018, Reveal got a little bit of money to do some digging into a story like this where we could bring in some outside help. And so we brought in uh, Jonathan Jones, who is an investigative uh, journalist with you know, a pretty long track record. And him and I started going to Mississippi to really dive deep into it. Where was Billy mm-hmm. Joe Johnson when he was pulled over by a police officer and why was he pulled over? This is part of the what we're looking at in the serial. But like according to the official story, Billy Joe leaves his house early in the morning. He tells his family that he's going to go hunting. He would do this a lot. Um, and so, you know, go hunting early in the morning before school. But according to the official version, instead of going hunting, he stopped by his ex-girlfriend's house. He went to her house. According to her, she didn't know it was him banging on the door. And, you know, when he banged on the door, she got scared. She called the police. Again, according to the official version, according to the interviews that we have, she says that she um, heard him banging on the door, then heard the police sirens because her mom called the police, and he ran away. And that's when she looked out and she saw it was Billy Joe. Then, again, all of this is according to the official version. This isn't necessarily – we don't know how much truth is in any of this. Um, But then according to the official version, he was speeding through town. He got pulled over, Sheriff's Deputy uh, Sullivan. Billy Joe gets out of the car, hands the officer his license. The officer goes back to his car to read uh, his license off. And when he does, the shot rings out. He looks up and Billy Joe is dead on the ground. And according to the grand jury, Billy Joe was trying to move the rifle and it went off and hit him. Or I should say, doesn't, doesn't, doesn't find that that's true. It was a rifle or a shotgun? The uh, shotgun. 
right away, I just think it would be awfully difficult to shoot yourself in the head with a shotgun just by the length of the barrel. I can't even imagine what that would look like. Did that come up? Yeah, it's, yeah, totally, totally. Like, I, I don't want to give away uh, what we found in the series, but that is definitely uh, something that we investigated and the people we talked to and all of that. So, I mean, what this series is, though, is that, like, you know, just want to be really clear that we are not doing a true crime story. Like, a true crime story is full of, you know, those thrills and, and all of that. Uh, we are investigating what the police investigation did and trying to understand if Billy Joe got a good investigation and if justice was carried out. And so, um, and, and, and also like, I think that the issue that like, when I think of true crime, that it's very, I don't know. It, it I, I think a lot of times it tends to forget the victim. Like the victim is, is, is a person and not, you know, a character like on law and order. And so I think what we really wanted to do is really work hard to, give Billy Joe's family a voice that they didn't have during the investigation. So we, we dive into all the details. We, we look at the autopsy report. We try to understand that. We uh, look at the forensics evidence. We've gotten a whole bunch of uh, experts from across the country to look at all of this stuff to kind of help us wrap our heads around what actually happened in the investigation and if justice was carried out. So, yes, the, the, the question about, like, the length of the barrel and all of that, we totally go into that. We, we dive deep into it all. Did your investigation turn up more facts or more questions that you think are important that people should hear and questions to be asked? Yeah, all of the above. <laughs> definitely <laughs> more, fa- definitely more facts, uh, and definitely more questions. Um, you know, I mean, the thing about this series is that my co-reporter Jonathan Jones and I—we don't have subpoena power. I can't force people to talk to me. I also don't have like the threat uh, if they are lying to me that uh, that you know anything is going to come out of it, right? So I think that what. One of the things that Jonathan and I have been really clear about is that we just want to lay out the facts and also, like, ask the questions maybe that weren't asked during the investigation. And so, yeah, I think that there are plenty of questions that come up, but also things that were, you know, written as facts, specifically from, like, the grand jury. Uh, I think we have poked plenty of holes in those, you know, quote-unquote facts. What do you most hope listeners take away from this podcast? What I hope that people take away is the thing that I'm trying to push really heavily on is the systems that we have created for justice and how a lot of those systems don't function the way they should. And that there are things that we can do to make corrections to those systems. Um, I think that, you know, I, I would hope that people take away from this um, the type of person that Billy Joe was, the type of family that he comes from, that, you know, people who, um, you know, they don't have a whole lot of resources and they never gave up this fight. They did everything that they were supposed to do and uh, and still didn't get maybe the outcome that they wanted, but also like, in, in my opinion, the, the respect, well, I feel like in a lot of ways, the family, um, the family feels like they were kind of discarded instead of, treated like a family that was mourning the loss of their child. And so, you know, I I hope that what people take away from this is that, like, there are things in the system that we need to change, that we prove 
in in the podcast that you know there are systems that that just aren't working for for the Johnson family, but also I think that like you know if one person is not getting justice, then none of us are actually getting justice. Al Etson is the host of Mississippi Goddamn, The Ballad of Billy Joe. It's a seven-part podcast from Reveal and PRX. It premieres this Sunday on MPB at 1 in the afternoon. Al, thank you so much for giving us a preview. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much for talking to me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.